Here we are. Hi, Agnes. Hi. Hi, Ezra. I feel like we're not supposed to make a joke. I know. Our usual jaunty tone is um, is maybe inappropriate for this somber holiday that we're doing an episode about, which is Tisha B'Av. Or Tisha B'Av. Um, <laughs> yeah. Although, you know, humor always does have its place and so does joy even in hard moments so it's like not i'm not gonna declare a full embargo on jokes i would never just just to sort of like dark veil over the face i mean i think we can put some um, our sound engineering team will collaborate with us on that Mm -hmm. maybe i can do a quick minor key version of the theme music okay yeah you're sitting on the floor right now right I'm sitting on the floor to be closer to the router, but it's actually quite appropriate. Yeah. We're here to talk about Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, which is one of the months of the Jewish calendar. And it's arguably the sad day of the Jewish calendar. How about a quick rundown of the basics, and then we'll talk about our questions or whatever the structure of our fallen episode is become. Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. Please take us away. So Tisha B'Av is the, I guess most centrally, it's the anniversary of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Not once, but twice. The two temples in Jerusalem that were the center of Jewish life were destroyed on this same day. And um, it's become in some ways like a catch-all day of mourning, it seems like bad things keep happening to the Jewish people and 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 many of them many, many of them fall on Tisha B'Av and it's this day where everyone sort of performs the sadness and sits on the floor and sort of we read the Book of Lamentations which is like a tremendously grieved uh, book of yeah, lamenting God turning away from us and letting the temple being be destroyed by our enemies and and it's just like every ounce of mourning is just poured into this day ritually you fast it's a full fast day from sundown to sundown so starting in the evening and you don't eat eat food or drink water if you're traditionally observing this fast until the following sundown uh it can be brutal brutal and it can be kind of beautiful that's that's the basics of it, like ritually. I think midrashically, it's it's supposed to also be the anniversary of the sin of the spies, like Moses sending spies into the into the Holy Land before they enter and try to conquer it, and they come back and they say, "We'll never be able to conquer this land," and everyone believes them and cries all night, and God is infuriated and declares that they'll they'll wander in the wilderness for 40 years before they are ready to enter the promised land. And yeah, it's just a coalescing of horrible things, including like, yeah, other tragedies of Jewish history later on are talked about and observed on this day. I think that's the rundown. I think that's the rundown. Now we were talking about as as this holiday commemorates the, the destruction of a great structure. We were, we were sort of toying with ruining our own structure of our podcast and making and, and sort of destroying and deconstructing our, our four questions. 
yeah, not that they would be unrecognizable, but just that as opposed to a sleek, modernist, minimalist, elegant edifice that we hear just sort of a tumble of boulders in a grassy field. Mm-hmm. Um, are we ready for our first question? Our first first set of ruins? Hit me. Number one, are we actually sad? What does it feel like to mourn on purpose, on schedule? Are we faking it? Is this real grief? Yeah. So I think we're starting with like a lot of people's experience of Tisha B'Av is that it arrives and you're supposed to act sad and you might not feel sad. You might be having a really nice summer. Uh, you might feel very far from periods of terrible oppression of our people. And uh, there's sometimes an awkwardness to that. And there's, but maybe there's also sometimes something else. Like, does it work? I guess like, does it work to, sit on the floor and sing in a minor key and talk about sad things and like what does it do yeah sometimes i i feel myself i don't know i just don't feel in it that much and i i wonder about it like is this helpful in some way yeah i mean go ahead well how does it feel to you 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 expressed a kind of deep fondness for this holiday i yeah it feels like it it somehow works for me i mean i what you talked about, I mean, the fasting certainly helps. It sort of puts your body in a very different space. But I do find it very moving to sit, the sitting on the floor in the dark, reading Eicha, which has its own lamentations, which has a yeah. beautiful and melancholy melody. Um, and the language of it, I find I find the language of that book incredibly affecting. So it does take me somewhere. I mean, it is it does feel strange and jarring. A couple of years ago, it was fell on my birthday. It's like a weird thing in the middle of summer. Um but I guess it, and, and and there's this talk too of like you pointed out yesterday the the image of the the professional mourners that shows up in Lamentations the idea that you would have would say like okay it's time to cry where are the criers where are the weepers let's get the tears going um, yeah and I think like in me and maybe in us or it's a modern feeling that like it it seems like oh that's that's sort of jarring like it seems inauthentic you know somebody is a professional performer of grief isn't that sort of not what grief is like is doesn't isn't grief supposed to be spontaneous or like does something make it not from the heart if it's if it's a planned ritual if there's somebody who that's that's their work to do it yeah and then i think about like what performers do for us and what rituals actually do for us they are they're asking they're trying to awake something in us that we might not we might not just feel organically and we need to feel it's like in there even if it's not if it doesn't come out without assistance you know um and i think that makes sense to me i think i mean i think in a way as as an artist as artists that's our job is to is to make ritual moments that allow people to feel something that they they already know they already have in them but no one has invited those feelings out recently i think that's a beautiful way of that idea of inviting these feelings out these things that we have inside of us i mean this feels like where that idea from this winnicott essay i was reading recently comes in of winnicott the psychologist had this Mm -hmm. essay he wrote towards the end of his life that he wanted to expand on but then he passed away but he says that so much of what we fear and what haunts us and what organizes the defense mechanisms we build in a therapeutic context and just in general in life 
has to do with things that have happened in our past that we haven't experienced yet. Yeah. And I think that's an incredible yeah. and elegant formulation that there are things that can have happened to you, whether they're like specific traumas that you maybe have struggled to integrate into your sense of self, or even just teach says that sometimes it's just an emptiness, the feeling that you wanted something to be there and it wasn't there, whether it's a certain kind of affection, love you wanted as a child that you felt was not there in the way in the moment you expected it. There's an agony there that becomes overwhelming and that these things, these experiences that shape us and organize our psychology so deeply, sometimes we haven't actually given ourselves a chance to experience them and to feel them. And until we experience them, until we feel them, we fear them happening in the future. We put them off into the future in our imaginations. Um, yeah. And I do think that there's something about this holiday that is not, not only just like, let's make space to mourn, but it just piles up these experiences from our collective past, whether it's the destruction of the two temples, the sin of the spies, Bar Kokhba, you know, like it, it, you, there's this invitation to accumulate experiences of trauma, both individual and collective, and to say, this is the moment when we have to feel these things. Have we really experienced what happened? Because unless you, until you experience it, you can't be freed from it somehow. Yeah. Or, or like process it in a, in a safe way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's part of being a, having been traumatized by something or having some, some pain from somewhere else, from something in the past that you, you haven't really reckoned with. It kind of happens over and over again in miniature for you. Just like you, if you haven't healed from the fact that you were, that somebody hurt you or abandoned you, it threatens to come out just again and again. And you sort of re re experience it. Like somebody just scolds you for leaving the dishwasher open and, and you're like back in, in this world of pain and walls, like your world's falling down around you. I, I mean, it brings me, it brings me back to this line from the Talmud, from the, Talmud Yerushalmi. This is actually on the first page of Masechet Yoma. They say, they said, any generation in which the temple is not built, it is as if it has been destroyed in their times. I don't know. Like, I guess that's like, at some point I started to really, when I started to really be able to feel the sadness of Tisha B'Av is like actually imagining an attempt to build a temple in Jerusalem and how I just think about it. Like it would, I, I just sense it would get so gross so fast. It would just be, it would be ethically bankrupt again right away. And people would be scrambling to get in on it and edge each other out and talk shit about the people who wanted to do it this way and not that way. And I just like, I, and I think, yes, it, like if it were to happen now, it would be accompanied by the continued oppression of the poor and the imp- oppression of Palestinians. And like, we're not ethically worthy of a holy place. You know, the same objections that the prophets raised throughout the prophets. They're like, you sacrifice things to God and do your special rituals and you continue to oppress the poor. It's a show. It's a, it's a show. And if not coupled with a just society, a temple to God is just like a joke. It's an insult. And I just, that's, I, I, that's, I, that's where I feel it. I feel, I feel like 
not only would that religious ritual be like a big shiny kind of idol, but even our rituals now so often, I don't know, they just go on in in synagogues for rich people, you know, and and they go on accompanied by tolerance of a of an unfair world that really shouldn't be tolerated. That's when I start to feel it. It's like if we would try to build a temple, it should be destroyed. Yeah, I think I think what you're saying is really profound. Something really hit when you shared this thought with me. It's incredibly wild to think about loss not just as a thing that something that was loved is gone, but that something is not yet ready to happen. You know, we yeah. we we long for something and it's not there. And it's there's no it's hard to imagine a horizon in which it would be there. And so I think like actually what in a way I can what I can imagine mourning doing what like negativity and like punk rock sometimes like really really the, the kind of punk rock that's like so negative and so like this world is totally fucked which like I love a lot of music like that I love it because it serves as like alarm bells do you know like it's like somebody should be saying that things are this bad one because it's true and one and another because like if nobody says it like if nobody well i don't know we'll just allow it we have to notice that things are wrong the point i think of of this of the morning rituals even though it's like planned and formulaic is to say like hey something is wrong and i think the the what comes with that idea that we have to have this moment to say to say that to to blast that music even if it feels arbitrary and prompted and external and scheduled and forced is that it also ends and the day ends. And there's a, I recently learned this bit of Talmud that is so is like deeply weird and we don't really can't really get into the details now, but it's talks about excessive grief. It talks about somebody who grieves Yoter Midai too much. And there's a schedule like in, in the schedule of grieving the loss of a, person there is a period when there's a period when that grieving is supposed to end um and i think that that's the other side of having a day when you're scheduled to grieve is that the day also ends just as it begins arbitrarily at sundown it ends at sundown and so what does it mean to invite ourselves to consider that extent of that emotional ethical catastrophe that is our world and then to say okay now it's time to stand up and you know in the spirit of that pure chaos vote thing it's like not on us to complete the work but it's also we have to do our part we have to step out into the world and try and contribute in some way so that there's there's something artificial about the invitation to grieve on this day at this time but there's also some lesson in that arbitrariness yes. of that beginning and in the end in the arbitrariness but definitiveness of its end yeah and i think it points us somewhere i i i think that's the idea to really feel it and then remember how it let you feel for a moment like things should be different we should be living differently and then change i mean the ask is to change i feel like that's this is the moment to think about number two ruin number two yeah and i'll say it please okay but what about a temple is the temple supposed to be our home would it feel like a home if we could make it again do we even want it to be our home what happens when you lose your home that you maybe didn't even really want to begin with i think that this is invites us to consider what i think is the difficulty of this holiday is like what 
we're supposed to mourn the destruction of the temple. At least that's the central framing of the narrative. Yeah. But do we care about the temple? What is, we don't, I, I don't. Yeah. It's never been. I mean, I wasn't. Never, yeah. We I weren't wasn't, there. I wasn't raised with the temple. Nope. And yet like, I mean, it is a pretty central thing for like rabbinic Judaism. I mean, a lot of the Talmud rabbis were actively missing it and figuring out how to operate without it as the sort of ritual and religious center. But it's just remains like always invoked. It's all it's it's in um in traditional prayer books at the end of every Amidah, like central standing prayer, the last thing is like, May the Tepo be rebuilt and we'll go back and do um that version of, of worship. I'm trying to think like where to start with this. Well, just to sort of narrate, there was the traveling tabernacle, which moved with the people through the wilderness. And that was a place where God dwelled and where Moses and the priests would go inside and have these encounters with the divine. And then there was the temple that was built in Jerusalem. It became a more permanent home for God. But then that temple was destroyed. It was rebuilt. It was destroyed again. And the rabbinic project in some ways attempts to translate the meaning of that home to a thing that can exist in any house of prayer in any yeah. um, house of study, even in any space between people when they gather to study or to pray. So that there's there's a rabbinic move to translate the temple as a physical place into something that ex- can exist anywhere in exile as long as some yeah. framework is built. So that's that sort of is like what the, the traditional move of dealing with the question of temple is. Right. And the fruits of that project are Judaism as we know it. You know, uh, yeah. most of our rituals are post-temple institutions designed as replacements and they also they also allow a diaspora judaism they allow judaism to be practiced in exile and without ever going to jerusalem which i'm personally i'm extremely grateful for you know i don't i don't know i can't imagine i can't imagine going (laughs) to jerusalem three times a year um or wanting to really i was interested in this thing that the commentator called Sephorno had to say about some stuff involving altars and sacrifice in the Bible, which like, so there's this um, little moment right after the 10 commandments are given that there's um, it's in Exodus chapter 20, verse 21. It says, make for me an altar of earth and sacrifice it on it, your birth, burnt offerings and your peace offerings. In every place where I cause my name, this is God speaking, to be mentioned, I will come to you and bless you. And Sephorno says, you do not, you, this means you do not need to build elaborate temples for me using precious materials. You can just use an altar made of dirt. I am available to be prayed to and to respond. And then later on, there's the commandment to build a tabernacle and I will dwell among you and you'll do sacrifices on this, in this special place, on this special altar. And the gloss of a lot of commentators is that like chronology of the text aside, this was a response to the sin of the golden calf, which happened, you know, just like very shortly after the revelation at Sinai, Moses disappears up the mountain and they freak out and they, they start to worship this calf that they made of gold. And yeah, not everyone agrees on this, but some, including Sforno, 
conceive this as the res- the result of that is that you have to do special sacrificial service in one particular place and that's this tabernacle and that's like as as Sophona puts it god's presence would d- dwell among them only by means of the tabernacle this was a step down from what he had promised them before the sin of the calf in every place that i permit my name to be mentioned i will come to you and bless you so like even the institution of having a temple is like we've descended a step from like where the ever presence of god that the accessibility of god and it's some it seems like this sort of concession to like oh you need a physical thing and you want to worship an idol okay then you have to do this like it it's sort of like because you have this uncontrollable need for for like central structure and dancing around a thing made of gold you have to build this golden altar and that's how we're going to do it and then even that gets gets destroyed and taken away but when it does in a way i don't know in a way god is even it is even less accessible but then in another way it's like i don't know does does access to god spread out at that moment and like i mean that's where that's where our way of just sort of standing in prayer wherever we are and being able to talk to god that way that's where that's where that comes from there's there's not a temple ritual anymore it's it's now you kind of make your your home into a temple of of ritual i i mean that's my deep deep inclination is to see the destruction of the temple as a kind of liberation into a different framework for it's an invitation and a liberation i also think it's you know even as the temple is seen as a descent but there is we have to acknowledge that in the tradition there is a sense that and this is another source that you brought from baba mitzia about the gates of prayer that there is a there is a sense in our tradition even though this ability to worship anywhere is I think a kind of beautiful invitation and expansion, a creation of possibility. There is this idea. Rabbi Elazar says, since the day the temple was destroyed, the gates of prayer were locked and prayer is not accepted as it once was. Yet, despite the fact that the gates of prayer were locked in the destruction of the temple, the gates of tears were not locked. And one who cries before God may rest assured that their prayers will be answered. And he brings in sources from lamentations and Psalms. So there, there is this idea though, that I think is important to reckon with, even if we see the positive, there's a bright side to the temple being destroyed or an invitation there. But theologically, our tradition really does emphasize to us that the temple was a, there was a pure, pure um, possibility of communication with the divine in that moment. And yeah, you know, maybe there's like, I feel like sociologists, psychologists, historians would talk about how we all need to create some sort of golden age in the past that we can imagine when, Oh, when it was easy to live in the city and make art, when it was when you could just roll out of bed and be in your loft and make performance and you didn't have to pay Mm -hmm. any, you know, like there's a, there's a desire to romanticize some past moment when it was easier to do the things that we do. And that, and that feels like uh, just have to reckon with that in like, even if we're not fans of the temple, what does it mean to think about the time when it was easier or would have been easier to communicate with the divine and to feel this connection i mean i do i do have a relationship to the thought of the temple and it being rebuilt and i know like so many so many people of our era just have a sort of like what why would i want that why would i want to i don't know why would i want us to be like slaughtering animals in a particular 
building, it feels so, I mean, it, I think I get annoyed sometimes with like people objecting to that as for, for sloppy and unclear reasons that are just like, I don't know. It seems weird. It seems primitive. I just don't think it's any, I don't know. I could see the, the potential power in it. And I don't see it as any more primitive as like lighting a candle and thinking that expresses devotion to God. I, it, it also sort of like it, it sometimes imagining the temple and service in the temple and like blood on the floor and the smell of it and the sounds of, of goats and things like that. It's sort of like, I'm like, this is what the intensity of Jewish ritual and contact with God used to be. And it was so belovedly tended to in, in a, in such a careful way that it seems just very intense and powerful to me. I mean, at the same time, I am like, it makes me uncomfortable to think of, of killing animals for this reason. But like, I don't know. I just am like, I, I don't knock it till you try it, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it's making me, I mean, I, yes, neither of us eats meat. So I think it can be said that we have a, there's a relationship to the reality of animal cruelty, but I do, I'm laughing. I'm remembering, I haven't thought about this a long time. When I first moved to New York, I had this idea of making a performance in my tiny little apartment with my two roommates where the audience would be in the living room and I would be live streaming the slaughter of a chicken from the kitchen that there was some whole ritual. And I was dating this person at the time who was like, I had a dream about your chicken performance. And in my dream, you kept trying to kill the chicken, but couldn't. And the poor chicken was like bleeding all over the place and running around. And I had to go in for you and, and do the, do the deed. And I, I think that there's some, there's some Torah to be extracted from that. And that I think it's, it's actually really difficult and decisive to, to, kill an animal I, yeah i just think i think that i think that an invitation i guess what i'm saying an invitation to the discomfort and the intensity and the ugliness of that and the and the idea that prayer and devotion shouldn't always feel comfortable um mm. or not that they shouldn't feel comfortable but they don't have to feel comfortable there's an invitation to consider how fully our beings could be committed to this thing i don't know if this is a dangerous line of thinking to go down with any kind of romanticism but i i relate to what you're saying i'm glad i didn't do the performance yeah there's just okay just one more one more talmud source that like rings in my ears when i think about the temple and and seems to distill maybe some part of what the temple might have been about back in the day there's this thing from from masachet bracha page 8a they're talking about the study of halacha and how important it is to study Jewish law. Rabbi Chia Barami said in the name of Ula, since the day the temple was destroyed, the Holy One, blessed be he, has only one place in this world where he reveals his presence. Only the four cubits of halacha. And in context, I think it, it might, it might sort of be referring to like, the sacredness of the study of halakha, but like, I don't know if it's just a different translation would that like put it different ways, I guess. But um, I think like the, the, the specificity of, of halakha and the, the idea, the key I think is that halakha is analogous to worship in the temple and 
it's it's this bounded and material expression of our relationship with God. And it's not like it's fascinating to me the the Jewish perspective, which runs very deep throughout the tradition, that like it's not pure spirituality or emotion that gets you in touch with God, but it's it essentially involves careful attention to detail and how one lives and how one observes the law. And like this this thought offered here by Rabbi Chia Bar Ami is like it's like our relationship with God is is now all about attention to those details. And that could be because like that's all we have left. We don't have that transcendent access that we can really feel but like maybe it's like that's all that temple worship was ever about is like teaching us to be lovingly careful and pay attention to the procedure of doing that and keep talking about it forever i i don't know if any of that that lands like um it does i i think it's I think it does because it's bringing us, I think that phrase bounded in material structure brings us back to the other word in this ruined question, which is the word home. And I think that without any kind of structure, even as one can have a felt relationship with the divine and move through the world seeking the divine, I feel like one is haunted by a sense of homelessness, that there's just sort of an inadequacy to the container for that. And I think that what Halakha provides is a sense of a structure. This is like a a place where I can where I can dwell, where I can build a life. Um I mean there's that wish in the Psalms of dwelling in the house of the Lord for a long for long days that like <laughs> Yeah that, that there's a sense of I don't know, just the feeling of like when you're visiting a city and you're exhausted because you are carrying your things all around all the time and you're staying on someone's couch and you don't have a place, a key to the place, you have to wait to your friend's home mm-hmm. to be able to go back home. So you end up like sitting in the Starbucks for an extra hour charging your phone. Like it's just that feeling of the exhaustion and the feeling of weariness that that afflicts a body in those moments, which is yeah. so different when you have a home in this place and you can go home and you can put your things down and you can sit and wash yourself and refresh yourself. That to me is the feeling of, you know, if, if we have a sense of that home in halacha and certain rituals that ground us in Shabbat in that experience of the observation of time, how much the more so would the temple have been that sense of like, this is the place where I can char- charge my phone. This is the place <laughs> where like, where where I dwell in the house of of the Lord. I'm not I'm not sort of trying to figure out what I can do around 59th Street for the next two hours. You know, that there's some that feeling of having a home. Yeah. Which I think we all know on some level. And and also the home as an as expression of of relationship. Yeah. I mean like I think I I think that Judaism just loves concrete expression of the of of love of like concepts you might have some concept of holiness concept of love but like you're not really loving someone until you're doing things about it concrete things and and those those actions contain and express a feeling that might otherwise like sort of slip away into air. And I think that's the idea that like um, the temple as a home and those rituals as a, 
as a vehicle for something like like something is lost when a ritual is no longer performable even if we can still feel those feelings in our in our hearts and talk about them like we can't do them you know what i mean like i don't know like if i if i it's a it's not the most important thing that you have like a wedding ring but like to lose that wedding ring you would mourn it because like that's a place for that feeling or like even if if you if you break up with someone and you still love them but but you're not married anymore you still love them you still have that feeling for them what's wrong with that but like you don't have the the concrete expression of any of it anymore that that holds it in place and that you get to keep looking at and doing each day amen so we have a we have a third question i guess yeah ruin 3 how do we understand blame responsibility collective guilt blaming the victim consequences a loss of coherence Yeah, this is kind of the question that scares me. Yeah, and it's, let it be said, just to sort of ramp us into it, that a lot of the Talmudic literature around this holiday is framed around understanding why the temple was destroyed. And I mean, this is President Lamentations too, but Mm -hmm. there are these discussions amongst the rabbis of why the various temples were destroyed. They say that the first temple was destroyed because of idol worship, forbidden sexual relationships and bloodshed. The second temple was destroyed because of Sinat Chinam, baseless hatred. There there are sort of like these, uh, you know, it feels like it's a, let's not just get angry at our enemies. Let's like look in, look within and understand what we may have done wrong that has caused this. And there's a, there's a sort of, uh, you know, a relationship to our own, morality and what's what we can do to change which is which feels like it has a certain ethical fiber to it but also really edges up very close against this idea that that when horrible things happen to people those people deserve them or that when something when you've experienced some kind of trauma that you as the victim are to blame which all feels Mm -hmm. deeply unhealthy and misguided and untrue so it's a right it's a this territory is a territory we're invited into by the rabbinic tradition yeah yeah, I mean, like, it's sort of said again and again in, in the Book of Lamentations and elsewhere that, like, you know, like, there's an idea that God has turned away from us and punished us because of our sins. And um, I don't know. I guess maybe the question is, like, um, yeah, do we want that energy? What is it? Like, is there some version of that energy that makes any sense at all? Is it, like, a toxic thought entirely i mean like it's obvious pretty quickly i think from experience that like the theology of like something bad happened to you because you did something wrong falls apart it just it just like doesn't i mean like you know babies just die and um i don't it's 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 impossible to sustain that i think with any even even logical integrity (laughs) Uh, and much less sort of like human empathy. This is like a cold way to think. But like, I think there's an attempt in it to regain, to find one's agency in a time when everything's falling apart. Or, I mean, if it is, if it is purely that, that you are a victim 
of someone else's or that we were a victim of the Roman army or the Babylonians or like then in a way that takes away some of our sense of agency because it's like, well, it just happened to us. And sometimes that's the healing thought. And sometimes I don't know. I think there, you, there is, there has to be some room for like, what should I do? Is there something I can learn from this? It just gets really upsetting for me quickly because it does, it edges into like, it was my fault that I got hurt. And um, I don't know, that can, that can fast be a very unhealthy narrative. I mean, I think it, I think it comes back to, I think what you're saying is really profound and it comes in terms of this is our best attempt to create some kind of agency or control over the situation because it's frightening to admit that we didn't have any control. And I think that it comes back to that Winnicott thing too, that sometimes saying, even if you get to the place of saying this thing happened to me and it didn't mean anything, it was random, this horrible thing happened. Even from that place, there's a temptation to just block it off to say like, this didn't mean anything. So I refuse to integrate it into my story and sense of self, Mm. but that we do have to experience that it happened. We have to include it in our story of self because it did happen. And until we experience it fully and hopefully in a supportive and healthy structure of until we experience it fully, we can't, we're enthralled to it. We're trapped by it. Um, We're shaped by it uh, in ways we're not always aware. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the closest I can come to threading the needle some way is, is comes up in that, the famous Tochacha in Leviticus where God says, is saying all these wonderful things that will happen if you follow God's commandments and then says that if you don't follow those commandments, I'm going to bring the sword into the land, that the land will vomit you out, the land will make up its own Sabbath years. I will cast a faintness into their hearts in the land of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight, fleeing as though from the sword they shall fall, though none pursues. With no one pursuing, they shall stumble, stumble over one another as before the sword. And um, it occurs to me that there's yeah. a, a funny, this idea of this disconnection of pursuit and flight as these things that are not actually, it's terrifying, but are not actually meaningfully connected. And a few verses earlier, there's this agricultural image of your threshing shall overtake the vintage, your vintage shall overtake the sowing. And even that word overtake, um, and this is true in the Hebrew too, that it, it suggests like someone chasing and someone running away and those two meeting that the person who's chasing meets the person. There's a, there's a moment of connection and relationship. And then it talks about the Israelites, your army shall give chase to your enemies and they shall fall that there's an action and there's a consequence that even when it's a relationship of conflict, there's a connection. And that in this state of this curse, this this rebuke in this state of running as though someone is pursuing, there's not a connection. And I think that that's what happens when we get into the cycle of the dance between do I blame myself or did it mean nothing is we start to see our own selves and our own experiences as free floating from the world. We forget that we have any connection to others. We forget that we live in a world where we're touched by others and that touch means something, whether it's tender or violent. Um, I mean, there's another line from Lamentations that I love. I forgot what happiness was. We just lose... Mm. 
we lose a connection to the idea that the world is this great churn of like of suffering and joy. And so I think that there's, for me, the idea that the thing that the pun, the idea of punishment comes not from, Oh, I, I did something wrong and I'm being punished by this horrible thing that's happening. But when we forget that all things are connected and that we are mortal beings whose bodies come up against other bodies and other realities, when we forget that, that's when we start to feel terror and disconnection. We start to feel like like an astronaut cut from the ship in mm. the words of your song. Like that there's there's something that feeling of disconnection is is the place both of the punishment and of the thing that and of the source of the punishment. Um Yeah. Yeah. It's like no, it reminds me of of the idea of of therapy as telling a story. Or, or telling a story about your own life as a therapeutic thing for the for the pain you experience to just be like kind of coming at you at random. You're floating on this river of experience, and that you're just getting hit by by debris. It feels like it makes no sense, and it makes it so much more painful. You don't know if you, things are fine or if you're just going to get hit again. And if you can make it part of a story, I mean, like there's a there's a danger of making like sort of falsely comforting story or even like a neurotic clinging to like this makes sense because of this and if i just don't um i don't know if i don't <laughs> you know it, it it borders on obsessive trying to control things or thinking you can i don't know i do understand the 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 need to reach for a story and also to 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 shift from trying to change the past to to trying to you can't change what happened to you, but you can change what it means going forward. What happens next, what you do next. And you might just get hit again by, by something terrible and it might not be your fault, but, but you can change the meaning of those painful events. I, I feel like, um, you can change what they were prelude to. You can wrestle a blessing out of them. I, I, it reminds me of Jonathan Sachs talking about the story from Genesis of Jacob wrestling an angel. The angel is like any crisis. And Jacob Jacob's victory is that he, he holds on to that crisis and won't let it go until it blesses him. And that's what, it, like in that wrestling match, it ends with Jacob saying, I won't let you go until you give me a blessing. And like, that's the idea that Jonathan Sachs's idea is that that's what makes Jacob the sort of spiritual forefather of Israel because something painful and frightening happens to him. He's attacked in the middle of the night and he demands that it become a blessing, that he learns something that it in some way makes him stronger or more clarified or more himself. I don't know that as as tough as some of this are we to blame kind of stuff is as a response to huge tragedies that's somewhere i can relate to it of like how can even this hold some blessing in it yeah i mean this yeah there's this maybe this is putting a crown on a crown but there's a subtle distinction there. Hearing you say that, it made me realize there's a subtle distinction between 
saying, I'm going to make meaning out of this traumatic experience. And this traumatic experience happened because of something that I did. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's scary. It's all, it's all, it's all scary to try to learn something from pain. And yet, like, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I, rem- I remember this song by Mount Erie, this band. I mean, it's just, this guy made this album called A Crow Looked at Me about the death of his wife. I mean, I think she was pregnant and was diagnosed with a terminal illness. It just, it just has this line in it where he says, it's dumb and I don't want to learn anything from this. I love you. <laughs> and um, yeah, I can, I can feel, I can feel that, I guess. And um, the, the disgust that we can feel when some, something truly horrible gets like instrumentalized or like, yeah. Yeah. Um, so maybe we lead in with that ruined question number four. And, but then what's next? What do you even do the day after things fall apart? Is it painful? Is it, is it exhilarating? Can we get a little bit of aftercare? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know what, where to start exactly. Um, dare we start with that word exhilarating? I mean, dare we go from where we've just been to that feeling? I know from moments when things have seemed to fall apart in my life that there is at a certain point, it's just like thrilling. You're ready to like, yeah, there's no ceiling and no floor. No, yeah. You're and just like, you're I like change anything. Yeah. My life survive anything. Yeah. My life's been ripped apart and there's no rules anymore. Um, yeah. And you're still in pain and in mourning. And yet you're like, there's an odd freedom that you, maybe couldn't have had any other way. Um, And maybe it's not worth it, but it might be a fact anyway. I mean, I, I I noticed, I noticed this. Well, maybe it should be said now that this is the last episode of our podcast. That's a new, that's like of the major holidays. This is the last chronologically. And it's leading us back into where we started which is the season of repentance um so this stuff about um seeing in tragedy like a call to some kind of change some kind of responsibility is mirrored in the calendar this this is the month before elul which is the month before rosh hashanah and the cycle of like the whole cycle of feelings and joys and and reckonings is ahead of us again yeah it's yeah, this is a, this is this bit of Torah that I think that I think is Rabbi Nachman, Rabbi Nachman that comes comes down by way of my favorite, well, Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld, who I listen to a lot. He what's his, po- what's his uh, podcast called? Inward with Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld. Inward, yeah, right, yes. Um, he gives Nachman's gloss on the line in Genesis: tohu vavohu, and the world was welter and waste was without form and void was chaotic uh was broken he says there's a question of what does it mean to say that the arts haita there was no there was no earth what do you mean the earth was um and he says that this is to say that 
we start not from a place of wholeness and then are broken, but we start from a place of brokenness. The, the, the catastrophe has always already happened. Mm. The thing we fear most has already always already happened to us. The destruction, yeah. the worst that could possibly happen is where we begin. And yeah. if we can reckon with that, there's a kind of freedom there. I mean, it's, it is true. It's so much easier to make change when your life is in shambles than it is when you're sort of chugging along and the machines of your reality are all humming along just mm-hmm. fine. It's very hard to change direction in that moment because everything seems so, you feel so buckled in to the way things are. Yeah. Um, and that even if in the face of destruction, it feels overwhelming, you just know I'm just going to start by picking up this brick of the ruin and then I'm going to pick up the next brick and I'll see how far I get. And I'm going to make myself lunch. And, you know, there's there's a humility and a sense of possibility there that mm-hmm. when we accept that the thing is already broken, so then what? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the other thread in our question is this question of, like, aftercare and, and care and comfort. And to say that there's exhilaration and possibility and agency in these moments of destruction is not to say that we don't need to care for ourselves and others and there's this beautiful midrash which i i've i think you sent me that recording of avi Killip's lecture on dirshuni tamar biala's anthology right. of contemporary women's midrash um and i've since come across a couple of them and uh and there's one that i learned recently that's quite beautiful and it starts it's about miriam and it starts Miriam sat alone as the people were scared of her leprosy, lest it return. And she herself waited for that leprosy to come and destroy her face and take her soul. And those first words, Miriam sat alone, um, Yeshva Bildad, are the same words that open the Lamentations. This, this, look how she, the city of Jerusalem, sits alone. And we know from the Midrash that Miriam was punished with this leprosy and what this Tamar Biala's Midrash does is extends that and says that even after she was healed, she was abandoned basically by her community because there was a fear that it would come back. She feared it would come back to herself and other people were afraid of going too close to her lest they be infected. And it seems to me that that is like a beautiful gloss on what the condition of Jerusalem is after at the beginning of Echav Lamentations that that the city is abandoned because it's been destroyed, but it's also abandoned because we're afraid to go back to it. There's just like too much suffering there. Mm. And we're afraid to return to it. We're afraid of being infected by that suffering. I mean, it's the same thing when somebody is really struggling and you sort of don't, you avoid seeing them because you just don't know what to say. You know, it's really, it can be very challenging to sit with someone who's in an extreme state of suffering. And yeah. we, you, it, it is almost analogous to the sphere of infection. And I think that there's something in that spirit of aftercare, you know, to, that it's not just about let's take action, let's re-examine our lives, let's turn back. It's also let's go back to the ruined city. Let's see who's sitting in devastation, who's been abandoned, who are we afraid of being in contact with, what's the suffering that we feel intimidated by, and how do we just return we don't have to know what to do. We don't have to know what to say. We don't have to know where to begin. We just have to show up. And so I think that there's something in that, like that glancing intersection of that midrash, which goes into many other beautiful things about Miriam with this holiday to me that seems like 
it's an invitation in the moment of after trauma and after destruction, not just to think about how we might change and what we might want to do, but also to show up for each other yeah. um, and to not leave, not leave people abandoned and left alone. Yeah. I also noticed that the next red letter date on the Jewish calendar is Tu Be'av, which is just mm. six days later. And it's this like sort of mysterious in a way um, day that's all about love. And there's not much traditionally done to observe it. It just says in the Mishnah, there were no happier days for the people of Israel than the 15th of Av and Yom Kippur. Um <laughs> Since on these days, the daughters of Israel go out dressed in white and dance in the vineyards. And it, it it's become a kind of Jewish Valentine's Day because the Talmud sort of goes on to, to say that it was like a matchmaking day. And it, yeah, it just it includes this like gleeful dancing and, and looking for a mate. And it's sort of moving that it just, it is kind of the aftercare of, Tuba, of, of Tisha B'Av and... Um, it's like your next job after being devastation is just open up and go out into an open field and ask to be loved. Yeah. 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 I, and I, I guess in a way, something about that, I, I don't know if I've phrased it to myself yet, but like, that's what I want. I want that ingredient to always be the ingredient of love to always be central to the idea of repentance or how we can live better or how we can change our society better. It always involves love and openness and um, maybe even dancing. I don't know where this fits in exactly, but like, I mean, when we talk about collective blame and collective punishment, I of course am thinking of climate change. I'm thinking of the, the era we live in where the world as we know it must change it's going to change if we keep doing it the same way as we are with hypercapitalism and fossil fuel consumption. It will, it will. So it's it's all it's starting to all burn down and and die a painful death. We still have this possibility to make it a less painful change and to intentionally change with with the goal of love and protection of of people and openness to change. Like, I read this book uh, uh, kind of a long time ago. I don't know if I finished it. It's called This Changes Everything by Naomi Klein. This Changes Everything, colon, capitalism versus the climate. And it was written in 2014. And it's like, here's how bad it is. And also, I it has this, like, lift of of optimism in some way that's like, everything that is wrong with our society is going to change. And it's going to, this unfair, harmful empire is going to fall no matter what. And like, maybe we can go toward that with, with joy and love, actually. And like, as scary as this all is, and as much harm has already been done, maybe it's one of the most exciting things about, about living in the 21st century. Like we have the opportunity to be part of this change where, where the empire falls. And maybe we can make that like a sort of loving even energetic project. Yeah, we can't forget what happiness is. Yeah. We have to remember that in this, in that work. I love that. I love that. <laughs> Maybe this is where the dove lands. 
the dove. Yeah. And also, maybe it's worth saying, like, we've gone through the cycle of the year with these episodes of this of this podcast. And I don't, we have plans to make more episodes. Um, yeah, potentially about Shabbat and Rosh Chodesh. But this is like, I see the, I see a circle sort of completing. And um, I'm like feeling how this conversation with its devastation and then it's like after care and turn toward possibility, like opens us back up into Elul as the, as the, as the, as the Jewish calendar does too, it sort of sneaked us back in to the prelude to a new year where we started from. Yeah. I feel super, super, I don't think I've ever felt that the, the sort of shape of that cycle as a cycle before. And I feel very, very grateful for these conversations. It really has changed my experience of the time of the year. Yeah, same, same. You don't say, I, the one of the last details that I, I read that the meal you're supposed to eat before Tisha B'Av is um, the last meal before sundown is a little bit of water, a little bit of bread, and some hard-boiled egg dipped in ashes. Ooh. Um, so I was going to say, I don't want to say like have a Chag Sameach, but... Yeah. But enjoy that egg dipped in ashes. Yeah. And and also, I feel there's a secret thread of Tisha B'Av that is a thread of joy. You know, they say, I can't remember. It's just a. they say one day all the fast days will be transformed into joyful holidays. And um, I hope I hope you, this Tisha B'Av, can feel that that secret thread of joy, the joy that we can even do this, that we can be together, that we can take care of each other in moments of grief, and that more days of joy are coming. Amen, amen, amen. Well, till next time, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Stay gay. Stay, uh, 